I'm glad my uh, tip jar is back. It's nice to nice to know I'm not working for free anymore. Um, just a quick announcement. Uh, tonight is the first night of Pickleball and Praise. Um, what that means, and I'll preface this in a moment, is uh, on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. we will be meeting at Lillis Park for our devotional. At 4 p.m. I make the call on the weather. Um, so if you are not currently subscribed to Flocknote, um, see Rod and make sure that happens because you'll want to know if you're interested in knowing that. What's that? Yes, the, uh, the bandit there, Rod. Um, and um, get signed up for that. So at 4 o'clock, we'll send out a thing, and you'll know whether that's a, a go or not. If it is a go, bring a lawn chair and probably some rubber boots. Uh, around the year 8070, a woman in the town of Smyrna had a little baby boy. She named that boy Polycarp. Polycarp, based on all historical records, grew up in a Christian home. So that meant whenever he was learning his ABCs, he was also learning to read Scripture and to memorize Scripture. And like any good boy, as he continued to grow up, he continued to learn more and more about this God. He, he lived in an interesting time in history. He was not old enough that he himself was personally a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. But he knew an awful lot of people who did. And people would come in and out of the church and would tell them the stories about the resurrected Christ that they had seen. And so he would grow up, even growing up being instructed, we are told, by the apostles in Asia. And most likely it's not beyond um, the wildest guess that probably one of those apostles was John himself, who would have mentored and taught Polycarp. And so in his late teens, in his early 20s, he had to do what many young people have to do, had to figure out what he wanted to be when he grew up. And I suspect he probably had an uncle who said, well, you're a pretty smart guy, maybe you should be a lawyer. Had maybe another relative who said, well, you're awfully hardworking and have a lot of uh, initiative. Maybe you ought to start your own business. But Polycarp was pretty set on one thing. He was going to go into full-time Christian ministry. And because Polycarp was born in the year AD 70, if you assume a date of the mid-90s of John's letter to the Revelation, that it wouldn't be entirely surprising that that day that the letter came to Smyrna, Polycarp would have been sitting there as somebody stood up and read this letter that had just come from John. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. And I wonder if Polycarp was trying to decide about this future. It's one thing to commit to a future that you know is uncertain and unknown. But it's something entirely different when a letter comes and says, here's what's coming. Persecution and hardship and challenge. And I know at least for myself, that would cause me to reconsider maybe being a lawyer or starting a business is actually a much better idea than it seemed to be before. Because things, it seems like, in Smyrna are going to get worse. 
This is a letter that's kind of like the two roads diverge in a lit yellow wood. But there is a point of decision for every single Christian. See, when we led, read the letter to the Ephesians, we discussed the importance of knowing between the difference of knowing what is true and what is false. And to the church in Smyrna, we're going to need to learn, learn to distinguish between what we'll call apparent reality and true reality. See, in life, we don't just have things happen. We are constantly evaluating the things that happen. The things that happen, we interpret, we call them either good news or bad news. We very rarely just have news. I heard of about a year and a half ago, a young man who had just moved his family, two young kids and a wife, been working there for two months at his new job until he came home one day because he had lost his job. And do you think he goes home and he says, hey, I've got great news. I lost my job. No, it's not just news. It's something that we consider to be either bad or good. And he considered that bad news. And he came home with tears in his eyes and he told his wife, even though it just moved across the country, I lost my job. See, news is never something that just simply happens. We interpret it and we filter it based on what we believe is good and what we believe is bad. When we were in Panama City Beach, we went to the Ripley's, believe it or not, and one of the first exhibits that you see is a large mirror, and above the mirror is written the words, did you know that 40% of people cannot do this with their tongues? This, I want everybody to try it right now. Let's see if you can do it. Cannot curl their tongues. And so you're supposed to stand in front of the mirror, pull your mask down, and see, can you in fact do it? And we went on and we enjoyed the whole wonderful tour there at Ripley's. And on the way out, there was what in a nook, what looked like a little bit of a mirror or a window. And we went up to the window and we realized that mirror we had seen at first was in fact a two-way mirror. (laughs) And it was a little disconcerting to think back about what you had done in front of that mirror. But it was very enjoyable watching other people come innocently (laughs) looking at that mirror. What that mirror represents is first what was an apparent reality. What we thought we were doing was making faces into a mirror and nobody was watching us. But later we encountered what we can call a true reality and we realized people were watching us that whole entire time. What shifted was our perspective, our awareness about what was really happening and what was really going on. See, Jesus is going to offer to the church in Smyrna some counter definitions of reality. What they think is happening, Jesus will tell them, is not really happening. Something greater and more purposeful is happening. But why should we accept Jesus' explanation of true reality? In Revelation, Jesus is introduced with a high and exalted terminology. It begins with a vision that John has in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20. And what we will find is in each letter that John, that is written to the churches, an aspect or an element of that vision is pulled out and given specifically to each church. To the church in Smyrna, it is the section out of Revelation 1, 17 through 18. When Jesus said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. I have the keys of death and of Hades. And then to the church in Smyrna, it begins by saying, thus says this royal decree that these words are spoken by the one who is the first and the last. When you are in the midst of a story, it is hard to know whether news is good news or bad news. Remember that young man I told you about who lost his job? Now at this point, he would say the best thing that ever happened to me was I lost my job. 
As a result of that, he started his own private practice. He says, I work less hours and I make more money. See, you never know while you're in the middle of the story whether the news is in fact good news or bad news. But Jesus has this perspective that we do not have. He was there in the beginning and he will be there in the end. And so his ability to see not just what happens within our lifetimes, but his ability to see what is happening in the whole entire scope of the universe gives him permission to tell us what really is real, what is the true reality. And because Jesus has this perspective of reality, we're introduced to a bunch of paradoxes. A paradox, if you remember, are when two opposite things are said in a way that seem to contradict one another. Like saying less is more, or you've got to spend money to make money. These are examples of these strange things that just don't seem to fit together, but they do. And Jesus founds everything he does on this paradox that he was dead and came to life. See, one of the things that you have to decide is what is the true ending point of the story of your life? Marlene Dietrich says, when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. And it gives her one perspective on when the ending is. But Jesus is a paradox because he died, but yet he has come to life again. And the ending that we apparently thought was the ending, we come to find is not, in fact, the ending. That when life on this earth is done, there is still more life to live. We find in Jesus that what we once understood to be the period at the end of the sentence is just a comma. There is more life to come beyond the death we experience in this earth. And because of the paradox of Jesus' own death and resurrection, it creates these paradoxes as we go through life in this world. We're going to look at three of those paradoxes that Jesus introduces to the church in Smyrna. And the first is this, that though they were afflicted and poor, he calls them rich. When we introduced the setting in Revelation, we talked about how those who would not worship as a part of the imperial cult would have had negative economic consequences. Certain ways that their ability to take care of and to feed their family would have been affected by the fact that they would not worship the Roman emperor. Kind of reminds me of Hebrews 10.34 that says that they cheerfully accepted the plundering of their possessions. So the poverty that is being discussed here is a poverty that is directly related to one's faith in Christ and the negative financial impacts that comes because of that. Can you imagine the parents of children in Smyrna telling their kids, see, that's why you don't want to grow up and be a Christian because you don't want to grow up and have a life like that. But as a counter definition of reality, Jesus says, even though apparently you are poor and apparently you are afflicted, Yet in one sense, you are rich. And we might wonder, how can that be? How can we be both poor and rich? One definition of reality says the rich are those who have the most money in the bank. And a counter definition of reality says the rich are those who have treasures in heaven. When we're studying the book of Proverbs, we talked about this theme of the better than Proverbs. And we realize that everything in life is about understanding what is better than something else. And to the church, to the Christians in Smyrna, they had decided it was better to be afflicted and poor and yet to be faithful to Christ than to be wealthy and deny Christ. 
I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 6.10, which speaks of having nothing and yet possessing everything. In the apparent reality, Christians may look like they are losing, but in true reality, they are victorious. See, what we need to decide is we need to decide which reality matters to us. In life, we're making all sorts of decisions that impact our faith and impact our finances. And one of the things that we have to be very clear about is what is the true reality as Jesus defines it. The second paradox speaks of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. On the one hand, the Jews are those who have a special relationship with God. They are people that God has chosen. They are those who God's favor is poured out on and are those who, God, who represent God to the world. And yet Jesus once again offers us a counter definition that those who are called Jews are not, in fact, Jews. Let's be very clear about the fact that this is a statement in Smyrna about some Jews. This is not a national statement about all Jews. But there is something that is happening there that when they claim to be Jews and representatives of God, Jesus makes it very clear that they are not representing him. And what they are doing is slandering Christians. And to help us understand what it means to slander Christians, I'm going to tell us about something that happened in AD 111. There was a new uh, governor who was put in, he was the uh, governor of Bithynia, a guy named Pliny. And Pliny, like any new employee, wanted to please his boss, Trajan, who was the emperor. And he kept encountering this problem that he didn't know exactly how he ought to handle it. And the problem was that he was getting people coming and informing on Christians and saying, hey, this guy's a Christian. He even mentioned he's getting anonymous letters from people about these people called Christians. And he's not entirely sure how he's supposed to go about handling these Christians. And so he tells the emperor Trajan, this is what he's been doing. He says, I ask them whether they are Christians. If they say yes, then I repeat the question a second and a third time warning them of the penalties it entails, and if they persist, I order them to be taken away to prison. Pliny says, here's how I know if they renounce their faith. Um, he says that he, he asks them to curse the name of Christ, which it is said those who are really Christians cannot be induced to do so. Now, the key thing here is that there are some people who are serving as informers saying, hey, just so you know, these guys are Christians. And what seems most likely historically the group that had the most to benefit from that would be Jews in certain communities who would be informing on Christians. And so the slander and, and the Christians then would feel like, man, I don't want to be a Christian. I'd way rather be a Jew because things seem better to them in the apparent reality. But Jesus is going to confirm once again the benefit and the blessing of being a part of the true reality. It helps explain Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison so that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have affliction. Rome doesn't have a prison culture like we have a prison culture. When you do bad, we put you in prison as the punishment. Prison was more often the place where you think about what you're supposed to do so that when you stand in front of the judge, you'll be ready for it. And so they are thrown in prison. That's a testing period. What are you going to do when you are brought in front of the emperor? or the, the, the pro-council, or the governor? What's going to be your answer? And it is during that time, that 10-day period, which just represents a short period of time, you're going to be tested, but your affliction is not going to be for a long time. 
I'm reminded of a statement in Daniel, Daniel 1.12, where Daniel said, Please test your servant for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And in 1.14, so he agreed to this proposal and tested them for ten days. And so what the Christians are being told is you're in a situation just like Daniel was. That for a period of time, you're making a decision because of your faith in this foreign country. And after 10 days, it will be proven whether you still are faithful to God. And this brings us to then the third and perhaps the most important paradox introduced to the church in Smyrna, which is to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has ears listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Death is often seen as the ultimate end. We believe beyond death. And to die for one's faith, we would say, would be to lose. And yet, the promise is to those who die will be given what? A crown, which is a sign of victory, of life. And so we wonder, are those who die for their faith, are they victors or are they losers? And it all depends what you accept to be true reality. If death is the end, then those who are martyred for their faith are losers. And yet, if death is just the beginning, then those who die are victors. They are given the crown just like a military victory or an athletic victory would be given a crown. See, when the Romans killed someone, they thought that they won and the martyr lost. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what's happening here. You will conquer if you're faithful to death. And this takes us back to Polycarp. Remember that young boy born in Smyrna around 70 AD? The young man who may have been present when John wrote his letter. The young man who was trying to decide whether he would go into full-time Christian ministry. In fact, that's exactly what he did. He was uh, eventually appointed to be the bishop of the church in Smyrna. And in the year 155, at the age of 86, he somehow got in the crosshairs of a persecution movement. For a couple of weeks, he was moved from house to house and hidden there as they came and they looked for him. And eventually they got to the house where he was. There was an escape route. And he said, you know what? I'm done running. God's will be done. And he allowed himself to be taken into prison. Polycarp was then brought into the arena and he was asked to stand before the pro-council. And the pro-council said, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists, of which he was referring to Christians. Because Christians are the ones who don't believe in all of the gods that everyone else believes in. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium gesturing towards all of them and said, down with the atheists. So they're asking him to rebuke Christians and he rebukes everyone else. Swear, said the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Just say this is all a big misunderstanding. Just say, I, I, you, you must have thought I was a Christian, but I'm not really. But here's what Polycarp said. 86 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul continued to appeal to Polycarp. He mentioned that he had beasts on hand. And Polycarp didn't budge. He talked about the fire that was there. And Polycarp did not budge. And eventually he was taken to a stake. They began to get ready to nail him to the stake. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. 
So they didn't nail him there, and they lit that stake on fire, and he was burned for his faith. And if you were asked to do Polycarp's funeral, there's one of two ways you could tell what happened in his life. You could tell it from the apparent reality perspective and say, what a wasted way to die. To lose when you could have lived, to give up when you could have gained. Or the other way you could speak at his funeral is one from the perspective of true reality. That this man, though he died, he will live again. That this man, though he seems to be defeated, is in fact wearing now the victor's crown. And he himself will escape the second death. See, as we live our lives, we need to be able to distinguish between the apparent reality about what's going on in our world and the true reality of what God has promised. And if we get the true reality right, things that seem like losses will turn into gains. And we too will win the crown of life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face to you and give you peace. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. If you want to talk about your commitment and your faithfulness to Christ, your relationship with him, uh, we'll have some elders in the back. I'll be in the back. If you want somebody to pray with, just come to the back while we stand and sing this next song together.